0: Welcome to another edition of Return to the Word Radio with Bible teacher Mark Fontecchio. Advancing the message of God's amazing grace through the teaching of God's Word. And now with today's message, here is our teacher. Hello and welcome
1: back to another edition of Return to the Word. Bible should be open to 1 Thessalonians 2. We have a lot of ground to cover because in this study we will finish up chapter 2 and make our way all the way through the third chapter. Love and sacrifice, being willing to give up the things closest to your heart just for the opportunity to lead one person to Jesus Christ for their salvation. For the Apostle Paul, this is what his entire life was all about. And only once you understand the love and sacrifice by both Paul and Silas how they willingly laid down their lives to advance the gospel of Christ. Then you can understand the words of our text. Try to think of the time and effort put in by Paul over the years to share Christ. It leads you to understand that these were not flippant words by Paul in our text. Love was the motive, and Paul had no problem putting it on full display. Starting in verse 17, Paul and his group wanted to remind those in Christ at Thessalonica of their longing to be with them. Paul was reminding his brothers and sisters in Christ that just because they had been forced to move on, it did not mean that Paul and his group had forgotten about them. Notice the wording in verse 17. But we, brethren, having been taken away from you for a short time in presence, not in heart, endeavored more eagerly to see your face with great desire. The wording literally reads that Paul and Silas had been torn away from them. This was something that was forced upon them. But the idea here goes further. It carries the idea of being orphaned off. The idea of a parent being ripped away from his children. Paul saw it as his spiritual family being torn apart. Paul had been forced to move on and it was literally pulling at the strings of his heart. In just a short time, these men and women at Thessalonica had been brought into the family of God and the bonds of love between them simply could not be broken. It could easily have been that the accusations were beginning to be made that Paul and Silas had no desire to come back, that Paul and Silas tend to run when the going gets tough. Paul lets those in Christ at Thessalonica know that in his heart he'd never left them, and if the truth was to be known, Paul had tried to return. Notice the emotions on display at the end of verse 17. Endeavored more eagerly to see your face with great desire. Paul and Silas had an overwhelming desire to return to Thessalonica. They tried to return. But we read in verse 18, Therefore we wanted to come to you, even I, Paul, in time and again, but Satan hindered us. Paul had repeatedly tried to return, but each time Satan had hindered him. Paul mentions Satan again in chapter 3, verse 5, and refers to him, As the tempter, Paul gives us the understanding that on the one hand, Satan does have the power to both hinder and frustrate the work of those who serve Christ. Satan opposes the work of God at every turn and actively seeks to disrupt those who serve Christ. But let us never forget the powerful lessons that we learn from the book of Job. Everything that Satan is allowed to do is within the limits that God has set for him. Even though we may be at times frustrated by the work of Satan and the opposition he gives us, always remember that God allows it for a higher purpose. Take a look at the beautiful statement about their love toward those at Thessalonica in verses 19 and 20. For what is our hope or joy or crown of rejoicing? Is it not even you in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ at his coming? For you are our glory and joy. One thing is certain. Satan could not hinder the love that Paul and Silas had for the church at Thessalonica. Think carefully what Paul was saying to those in Christ at Thessalonica. The word for crown that Paul uses is a word which referred to a wreath, which was given to those who were victorious in the Greek games of the day. Paul is describing the day when he would stand before the judgment seat of Christ. And Paul would know that he had not only run the race, but he had been victorious. Because at the judgment seat of Christ, Paul and Silas would be able to see these new converts to the faith. They will be their crown. They will be their joy. If you wanted to know what motivated the Apostle Paul, this is it. Paul was willing to sacrifice it all if it meant leading men and women to salvation in Christ Jesus. Paul's greatest joy would be seeing his fellow believers at the judgment seat of Christ. Paul and Silas served the Lord and lived their lives always in view of that day. This is why they could face the persecution. This is why they could face the hard times and still keep going. Because they lived for the eternal. They lived in light of the fact that the rapture could come at any moment. That the return of Christ for his church is imminent. And I must tell you, when you get to this point in your life, when you live for the eternal, there is great comfort and peace in Christ. Now, as you hit chapter 3, remember what we looked at before. Based on our study of Acts, it would seem that Paul and Silas were the ones chased out of Thessalonica and that Timothy was not with them. It was safe for Timothy to go there. Therefore, Paul tells them, starting in verse 1, Therefore, when we could no longer endure it, we thought it good to be left in Athens alone. And sent Timothy, our brother and minister of God, and our fellow laborer in the gospel of Christ, to establish you and encourage you concerning your faith. The time had come for Paul and his group, they could no longer endure the suspense of not knowing what was happening with their brothers and sisters in Christ. Their separation, their lack of communication ate away at them. Paul had been hounded by these Jews from town to town and had a deep concern of what would happen back at Thessalonica for this young church. Turn over to Acts 17. At this point in Acts, Paul and Silas had already fled from Thessalonica to Berea which was about 40 miles to the west. But take a look at what happens in Acts 17, starting in verse 13. But when the Jews from Thessalonica learned that the word of God was preached by Paul at Berea, they came there also and stirred up the crowds. Then immediately the brethren sent Paul away to go to the sea, but both Silas and Timothy remained there. So those who conducted Paul brought him to Athens, and receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him with all speed, They departed. Paul, Silas, and Timothy met up again at Athens. But the deep concern they had was what we just saw in verse 13. If the Jews from Thessalonica were so dedicated to stop the gospel of Christ that they would actually travel down to Berea to stir up the crowds against Paul, then the obvious question that it left was what type of opposition was taking place back in Thessalonica. Now it seems by piecing together what we know in Acts, and for Thessalonians, not only was Timothy sent to Thessalonica from Athens, but it would also seem that Silas was sent on a mission to the region of Macedonia, probably to the church at Philippi, leaving Paul in Athens just as the book of Acts records. Paul eventually moved on to Corinth where both Timothy and Silas rejoined him. But this time in Athens is the time Paul is speaking of back in our text when Timothy was sent to them. So head back to 1 Thessalonians. It all goes back to this entire point that if Paul and Silas were just con man, Paul wouldn't have sent Timothy to them with the sole purpose of establishing them and encouraging them in the faith. Notice the reason in the first part of verse 3 for sending Timothy to them to strengthen their faith, that no one should be shaken by these afflictions. The word for shaken means disturbed. It was a word that was used to refer to the wagging of a tail on a dog. And the picture given is of the believers going back and forth, being shaken or unsettled in their faith. The afflictions were the persecution that they were facing. And the obvious concern was how would these new believers hold up in the face of the onslaught of persecution that was coming their way. Take a look at what Paul tells them starting in the second half of verse 3. For you yourselves know that we are appointed to this, For, in fact, we told you before when we were with you that we would suffer tribulation, just as it happened, and you know. I believe this second statement in verse 3 applies to every believer in Christ. It is part of the plan of God that those who follow him will suffer for their faith. Count on it. Plan on it. Because this is part of God's plan. Paul testifies, we are appointed to this. The Christians at Thessalonica needed to know that their suffering for the faith wasn't some accident. It is part of the plan of God for those in Christ Jesus. 2 Timothy 3.12 teaches that all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. Notice with me that this was something Paul had already taught them about when he was with them. And I am confident that Paul also taught them about the purpose of suffering for Christ. And I think it would be helpful to take a look at a few passages in the Word of God about this. Turn over to Matthew chapter 5, and we're not going to stop long at these passages, but I want you to get just a glimpse of the consistent theme in the Word of God about the suffering of those who dare to have faith in Christ. Matthew 5, looking to the words of Christ, starting in verse 10. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when they revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. If you apply the principles of this text, it will completely revolutionize how you look at suffering for Christ. Because the truth of Scripture is that our positions of service in the future kingdom of God our rewards at the judgment seat of Christ, it is all being determined by how we handle the experiences of this life. Think of the words of Christ. If people lie about you, if people revile and persecute you for righteousness' sake, speaking of those in Christ who possess the righteousness of Christ, then you should rejoice because you belong to the future kingdom of God and you will receive your reward in heaven. Head over to 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 12. And as you head to 1 Peter 4, remind yourself of what Christ himself said. In John chapter 16, Jesus said to the disciples, In the world you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer, I have overcome the world. 1 Peter 4, starting in verse 12, we read, Beloved, do not think it strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you, as though some strange thing happened to you. But rejoice to the extent that you partake, of Christ's sufferings, that when His glory is revealed, you may also be glad with exceeding joy. If you are reproached for the name of Christ, blessed are you for the Spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. On their part He is blasphemed, but on your part He is glorified. Notice again this same message. Don't think it strange when persecution comes, when suffering for the faith comes, but instead rejoice. Head back to our text in First Thessalonians. Paul reminds the church in verse 4 that he had already taught them repeatedly that they would suffer tribulation. Paul and Silas saw the importance of warning new believers about how much the world will hate them for their faith in Christ Jesus. You see, when we fail to warn new converts about the hatred of the world, we fail to prepare them for the battle and how they should respond. And then look again at what Paul tells them, just as it happened. This should have actually built their faith, helping them to trust Paul and Silas as messengers of God, because their prediction did happen, and it showed that the words of Paul and Silas could be trusted. In verse 5, Paul goes back to the subject of sending Timothy to them. Because of the tribulation, Paul knew would come, he tells them, for this reason, when I could no longer endure it, I sent to know your faith, lest by some means the tempter had tempted you and our labor might be in vain. The bottom line was that Paul was concerned about their faith, not their faith for salvation, but sanctification. He wasn't questioning their salvation when Paul stated, I sent to know your faith. He wanted to know if they were continuing to walk by faith, to live by faith. Paul knew how they had responded to the gospel. It's seen all throughout this epistle. They had received the word of God. But would these new believers in Christ continue to walk by faith? Would they continue to live out the Christian faith? Had these new converts given in to the temptations of Satan, had these new converts fallen away at the first hint of persecution, there would not have been much of a church at Thessalonica to speak of. And for Paul and Silas, their labor at Thessalonica would have been in vain. Take a look, starting in verse 6. But now that Timothy has come to us from you, and brought us good news of your faith and love, and that you always have good remembrance of us, greatly desiring to see us, as we also to see you. Therefore, brethren, in all our affliction and distress, we were comforted concerning you by your faith. For now we live, if you stand fast, in the Lord. Timothy had just arrived with the good report, and you can almost sense the relief once Paul and Silas heard the good news about the faith and love of the Christians at Thessalonica. These believers were continuing to walk by faith. Love was the byproduct of their faith, love for both God and for the family of God. This love demonstrated itself in how they remembered Paul and his team. Instead of listening to lies about them, these new Christians longed to see Paul and Silas. And this brought comfort, this brought encouragement, even though, as Paul records in verse 7, they faced affliction and distress. They were comforted by the continued faith of these new believers. Paul was letting them know that even though he had moved on, Paul was still battling affliction and persecution. This was another bond that they shared. Paul and Silas had not escaped persecution by leaving Thessalonica. Paul and Silas had not escaped the worst of it. It actually followed them. Before word had gotten back to Paul and Silas about their continued faith in Christ, the concern they had for these new believers was weighing them down. But Paul now says, we live because of the news from Thessalonica, because they had stood fast in the Lord. Paul and Silas truly felt like a dead weight had been lifted off of them, and they felt alive in Christ. For Paul and Silas, their joy came from seeing their brothers and sisters in Christ walk by faith and stand firm in the Lord. Paul's entire life was about serving Christ, and the very thought of fruit coming out of the ministry at Thessalonica helped Paul to push on for the faith. Think of the lesson for all of us. As we walk by faith, we actually encourage others in the body of Christ to keep pressing on in the faith. Take another look at verses 9 and 10. For what thanks can we render to God for you for all the joy with which we rejoice for your sake before our God, night and day praying exceedingly that we may see your face and perfect what is lacking in your faith? Paul and his group were so touched by the faith of those at Thessalonica They were at a loss of words how to thank God enough for the work he had done in their lives. Nothing they could do, nothing they could say, would compare to the debt of gratitude they owed to the Lord for the joy he had given them. Here we get to the reason that the church at Thessalonica was able to remain steadfast in Christ during this persecution. It was the Lord at work. It was God himself who held them up in the storm of persecution. Think of this second statement in verse 9. With all the joy they had, they rejoiced for their sake before God. On the one hand, Paul and his group were constantly thanking God for the work he had done. But on the other hand, night and day, praying exceedingly, that we may see your face and perfect what is lacking in your faith. During the long hours of the night, and during the busy hours of the day, again and again they offered their prayers to God for them. I hope we're beginning to understand. The large amount of time that Paul and his men spent in prayer, this was the overflow of their hearts. And what I love about these prayers, it wasn't like they were asking God for things of this world. They were asking God if they could be reunited with their brothers and sisters in Christ to help them grow in their faith. That is love. That is the sacrificial heart of the Apostle Paul. And it would be several years before Paul was actually able to return to Thessalonica. And this forced Paul to address the areas of growth by writing a second letter to the church. Be thankful Paul was not able to return right away, because it's left us with the instructions we have in Second Thessalonians. Satan, being allowed by God to block Paul's return to Thessalonica, ended up giving the Church of Christ these wonderful letters in the Word of God. Notice the prayerful attitude of Paul. In verse 11 we read, Now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus Christ direct our way to you. The bottom line is they wanted to be able to return to Thessalonica. Paul was praying for God to remove the obstacles that were keeping him from returning. But notice with me again, God the Father and God the Son side by side in this verse on equal footing. Verses 12 and 13. And may the Lord make you increase and abound in love to one another and to all just as we do to you so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with all his saints. Paul's desires that the Lord would cause them to abound in love. Paul knew that he may or may not be able to return to Thessalonica, but either way, the growth of these believers in Christ was in the Lord's hands. And the wording used here by Paul in verse 12 means not just that they would increase in their love, but that they would be overflowing in love. The assumption made is that love was already present in their lives, but overflowing love is the evidence of someone who is abiding in Christ. We would expect Paul to urge this type of love within the body of Christ, but notice the little statement, and to all, even to their enemies, even to those who persecuted them, they were to abound in love. This type of love is not natural to man and can only come from the Lord. How great it would be if we were known for this type of overflowing love. And the reason Paul wanted this for the believers is found in verse 13, so that he may establish your heart's blameless in holiness. This is the work of the Lord. The heart represents our entire lives, the thoughts, the feelings, the inner life. And the idea of establishing is becoming stable, becoming steady and grounded in the Lord. The prayer was that their entire lives would become stable and grounded in the Lord. The goal of their growth in love is that they would be blameless in holiness. The demand for holiness in the Word of God is rooted in the fact that by accepting the atoning work of Christ, the believer has been separated from the world and set apart as belonging to God. The goal for believers is to live blameless by abiding in Christ, walking in Christ, and when you do sin, confess your sin before God and seek His forgiveness. Being blameless means giving no reason for someone to question their faith. It is to be separated from sin and to Christ. And you do this not by the legalistic rules of men. You do this simply by walking by faith, by abiding in Christ, by abiding in His Word. Notice the wording, establish your hearts. It's easy for churches to become focused on the externals, what the church building looks like, what people wear to church, how we act outwardly. But Paul's focus was on the internals, what was taking place in their hearts. But notice this statement at the very end of verse 13, at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, with all his saints. This changes the discussion a little bit. First, key in on the expression, with all his saints. The Greek reads, with all his holy ones. These are the saints of God. But what does Paul mean, at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, with all his saints? I don't think this is the second coming of Christ at the end of the tribulation because the context does not fit. The context here is believer standing before the Lord. And at the second coming, at the end of the tribulation, the focus is on Christ judging the nations. I also do not think that this is referring to the rapture because at the rapture, the Lord will have some of the saints with him, the dead in Christ, but he will be coming for the rest. But notice again the careful wording, he will come with all his saints. So, if this is not the second coming, and if it is not the rapture, well, what is it? Well, listen closely. Here's how we can understand this passage. Focus in on the word coming. The word used is sometimes translated as coming, and other times in the New Testament, it means presence. Context dictates the proper meaning, and I believe the context points to the meaning presence. Insert the word presence and think of how this makes this verse read. So that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ with all his saints. A few translations actually word it this way because the meaning intended by Paul is the judgment seat of Christ. This is the subject that Paul brought up back in verse 19 of chapter 2. Believers standing in the presence of Christ. Paul urged the church at Thessalonica to be separate from the world, to be ready so that when they stood before Christ at the judgment seat, he would find them blameless before God and men. Antoine Fisher was born in prison to a teenage mother. His father was shot and killed before he was even born. He became a ward of the state of Ohio, placed into foster care. He spent 14 years of his life with a cruel foster family, where he suffered years and years of abuse. Still a teenager, Antoine walked out the door of his foster family without them even giving him a goodbye. Antoine graduated from high school, but he found himself staying at the YMCA. Other times, he slept on park benches and in alleys. It was then that Antoine joined the Navy. Antoine spent 11 years in the Navy, and it was in 1992 that Antoine sent out to look for his real family. Well, After several phone calls, he reached his aunt and uncle in Cleveland, who escorted him to a run-down apartment complex where his mother lived. When Antoine met his mother and she realized who he was, she sat down on a worn-out couch and just cried. Antoine asked her for an explanation. He wanted to know why she never came to find him when she got out of prison. But instead of answering, she sat there with tears streaming down her face. Antoine kissed her on the cheek. He walked away completely devastated and once again feeling helpless and alone. They made a movie of his life, and one of the most touching scenes was when Antoine left the apartment. He rode back to his aunt's house. As he gets out of the car, it becomes clear that this is a man who feels he does not belong. This was a lonely man. But as he enters the front door, his entire world changes. Antoine is met with a course of cheers from 50-plus relatives, all waiting to meet Antoine for the first time. There were children. Cousins, uncles, family friends, all smothering him with hugs and smiles. One of his aunts comes along and squeezes his cheeks. Antoine was completely overwhelmed. The hallway stairs was filled with kids holding up signs with his name, which they had made with crayons. Antoine was then led to the next room, where a feast was spread out along a table. The room had been made ready for a party, and for the first time in his life, people were demonstrating love toward Antoine. For the first time. He felt he belonged. Just then, an elderly woman sitting behind the table waved for Antoine to come over by her. She slowly raised her arms, grabbed his hands, a tear runs down her cheek, and then with a raspy voice, she simply said to him, Welcome. What a powerful image of being welcomed home. And if you can picture that kind of love, that kind of joy, that kind of acceptance, then you can picture what the family of God is supposed to be all about. It is a place of acceptance and joy, but above all, hope in Christ. The family of God is meant to be a place of warmth and love. And if you can picture this hope and this love, you can get but just a small glimpse of the great reception that awaits us as we are welcomed into the presence of God. The church at Thessalonica had been living their lives in a manner which demonstrated that they were living for the day when they would stand face to face with Christ. They knew the hostility of the world. They knew the feelings of loneliness and despair. But they also knew the importance of the family of God on earth. And they knew the importance of loving one another within the body of Christ, while looking forward to the day when we will be with our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Thanks for listening. If you like what you've heard, tell others and help us to spread the message of God's amazing grace. We'll see you next time, and I pray that you will continue to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ.
0: Return to the Word Ministries is committed to teaching the full counsel of God's Word and the gospel of Jesus Christ. For more about our ministry, please visit returntotheword.com.